and welcome back to Voices of Western. We are the Humans of Western podcast. My name is Madison, and I'll be your one po- uh, co-host for today's episode. And my name is Hussein. I'm the other co-host for today. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at humans underscore Western and our uh, Humans of Western Facebook page for more episodes and everyone's stories. Awesome. So in our today's episode, we have a very special guest with us today. Her name is called Leslie D'Souza. And she's a director of strategic storytelling and digital engagement as part of student experience at Western University. Uh, some of the topics that we are hoping to cover for today are sharing a bit of Leslie's personal experience and story when she traveled abroad to the US for studying, uh, as well as a topic that she's very passionate about, which is thriving, what it means to students, and how can students thrive during these very different times. So, Leslie, why don't you take it away? Awesome. Okay. So, I guess I'll just tell you a bit about myself. Is that a good place to start? That's perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, So, I was born and raised in Oshawa, uh, in the GTA. So, I'm I'm born and raised Canadian, and I've lived mostly in that area for for most of my life. Uh, But I went away to school to the University of Guelph. And I went to the University of Guelph because I was going to uh, I was going to become a, a veterinarian. And so it's funny I usually do this kind of game with people when I I ask people what they think of my undergraduate degree is likely in. Uh, and this is a it's a fun game because now I work in basically doing kind of communications and education, student development theory, working in student affairs. And so a lot of the times people suggest things like you know you have a degree in psychology or like uh, you know business or um, or marketing and communications. And I'm like, oh, those all would have been so useful. <laughs> and, but my undergraduate degree is in biology, uh, which is useful in its own way, for sure. It taught me experimental design. It taught me critical thinking. Um, I, learned, I learned a lot from that degree, although I didn't end up using the, the subject matter itself uh, in my professional life. Um, so I like sharing that story, I think, because uh, sometimes I, I think that as students, we think that you have to have everything figured out and that what you pick right now is going to define the rest of your life. Um, and I'm here to tell you that my path was in no way linear. <laughs> uh, there were lots of zigs and zags and unexpected things along the way uh, that, that changed my path. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about those things. Um, and, and one of the things I did want to talk about today is this, this concept of thriving, um, because I think that it's illustrated really, really nicely in some of the stories I'm going to be able to share. Um, so, yeah, I, I went to the University of Guelph and did my undergrad. Uh, and by the time I got to the end of that undergrad, um, I started to recognize that maybe I didn't want to be a biologist. <laughs> and that was that was tough. I pretty early on struggled academically and uh, and I started to realize that I wasn't going to make the grades that that I was hearing were necessary to get into the veterinary school that was there and so that kind of really threw me for a loop and I got really involved as a student leader and I started kind of expanding out and taking classes not related to my major I had special permission from my academic counselor to take an arts minor with a biology major so that was a big deal that's really cool yeah, I know. So it was so funny because I'd go home to my family who, you know, were from Oshawa. So like most of my family work in like in the GM plant. And so I'd go home and explain to them what I was doing. And they're like, so you're doing your degree in biology and music? And I was like, yes. <laughs> so they're like, what are you going to do with that? Like work at a zoo and sing to the monkeys? Like, come on. 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I think that I didn't have the language to be able to explain to my family in some ways. Um, many, most of them, uh, at the time w- who were asking me these questions, many of the, the older generation of my family hadn't gone to university. And so I was, tr- I was having a tough time explaining like, you know, I'm learning things that I can't directly connect to the job I'm going to do yet. Like I, but it's changing who I am as a person. Like I'm, I'm growing into someone and I'm like changing and learning things and learning who I want to be. And those are all the really important things. And I think there's going to be a job at the end, but I don't know what it is yet. Um, and it was really difficult to, to stick handle those conversations because I didn't know what I know now. Uh, and I know that all those things are true now, that, that I was forming into the human being that I, you know, have become now. Um, and, and that I would find a niche for myself that made sense and that connected with, with what I believe in. But it took me a while to find that language and be able to explain that story to my own family. Um, so I'm hoping that in sharing it here, that maybe people will start to be able to have that language and be able to share with their own families. Like it's okay if your, your degree and your major, if you can't see the purpose that it has yet, but if you believe in it, if you're passionate about it and you engage with it and it's important to you, it's okay that you don't know the exact name of the job you're going to get at the end. Um, that will come. Uh, just my advice is to stick with things that interest you stick with things that don't feel like a chore uh, because it will be really hard to do well at those things Uh, and if you can if you can find enjoyment in the process of learning and find enjoyment and passion about the subject matter then things will fall into place later and that's okay yeah that's really comforting Um, here because we are actually both third year students so there's kind of like that looming threat of what are you doing post undergrad that's kind of in the back of my mind right now as I'm navigating through this year but I have to remind myself okay I gotta get through this semester and then third year and then I can worry about fourth year because to be honest um, there's a lot of uncertainty right now in terms of uh, like moving past my undergrad and, and so it's very comforting to hear like there's no one set path that you have to go down nope and you can change path like later than you expect mm-hmm. <laughs> so You know what, I think I'm going to actually like start talking a little bit about thriving because as I share my story, I'm going to be like, and this is that thing happening (laughs) right here. (laughs) This is why I wasn't thriving at this point or why I was. Um, So I, since I got to Western, I've been at Western for one year uh, and I've worked at six different places. Uh, So I've, I've worked at the University of Guelph. I came back and worked at the University of Guelph after I did, uh, after I worked at Bowling Green State University in Ohio uh, while I did some grad work there. And after the University of Guelph, I went to Centennial College, and then I worked at Ryerson University for about 10 years, and then I went to Ontario Tech in Oshawa, and then I ended up at Western. So you can see, like, I bounced around quite a bit, and so I have, I have some basis for comparison at different places. Um, but when I got here a year ago, one of the things that brought me here and made me really excited was um, this, this vision of thriving that informs the work of student experience at Western. And I had heard about Thriving before. Um, it's based in research that's been done at um, Azusa Pacific University in the U.S. by uh, Dr. Lori Schreiner. And I had been involved in kind of like Canadianizing a survey uh, called the Thriving Quotient to figure out like how students at Ryerson were doing on these factors of thriving that she would talk about. And so I, had, I knew about the factors and I knew about this kind of like positive like way of looking at mental well-being and holistic well-being, which when we say the word holistic, we just mean like everything that feeds into who you are as a human. And like, it's really important to look at all of those things at the same time and not just like your mental health. 
<laughs> you know, like you have to look at everything, like what's going on for you right now, because all of those things are interconnected. Um, so we, I had heard about thriving. I came here because it was really exciting to me that we were talking about thriving, not just in the context of well-being and not just in the context of mental health, but across all of the areas of student experience. So how does thriving play out in a career a career services area? How, how does thriving play out in sport and recreation? How about in leadership and academic support? So it's fascinating because we're looking at the dimensions of thriving in all of those areas, which is very different than any other place that I've seen using thriving. Definitely seems like a, a broad word to use, like thriving. So it's interesting to see how it kind of adapts to different scenarios and like what exactly it means to. to yeah, and it's it's funny because I look at thriving as uh, I mean, part of it is great communications because like who's going to be like I'm not I'm not into thriving, <laughs> like I don't want to thrive, and like it's it's really about naming naming what we're after, which is okay for a long time, the way that we looked at supporting good mental health was by catching students when they were down. So when, when somebody's in crisis or when somebody's like feeling like I'm going off the rails and I need help, we got really good at responsive care. Uh, so I've worked in student affairs at all of these different universities for about 16 years. And we have, we have gotten good at identifying students that are in need of support and identifying ways that we can support them when they get to periods of time where they're, they're not able to cope with the challenges um, that are in front of them. But what we didn't see was fewer students landing in that situation. So we got way better at responding to it, but we didn't actually see a decrease in students that were going under. And that's a problem because you can only scale up uh, like a counseling department so far when you have a, a population of say 40,000 students, right? Like if, mm -hmm. if, you, if you constantly see growth in the need for that, there's only so far you can take that. So we need to look at it differently. And one of the, what I love about Dr. Lori, uh, Dr. Schreiner's research is that she looks at, let's, let's look at somebody who is doing well. Let's look at somebody who is thriving. Like what does a thriving student look like? And, and what is going on for them that helps them thrive? And that's, she did a lot of research and she found these five things that really feed into how people thrive, like how all people thrive, but specifically how students thrive. Um, and those five things are positive perspective, social connectedness, um, engaged learning, academic determination, and diverse citizenship. Um, and so I'm going to, when I tell my story, it's going to be great because all of them, are present in this story. <laughs> um, so I, t I already told you that I went to the University of Guelph and I was going to be a vet. And I would say that when I arrived at university, I, I was thriving. I had my academic determination. Academic, academic determination just means like your why. You have to understand your purpose in being here. Like, why are you taking the major you're taking? Uh, do you know what you want to achieve within what you want to do? So not necessarily and not necessarily attached to a job like it doesn't have to be like I have to name the job but I have to know why I am connected to this thing like I knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian I could name the job but it was mainly because like I loved animals I loved working with animals I had coughed at a vet clinic and like I felt really passionate about you know connection and, and healthy care of animals and, and community and, um, and that was, that meant something to me that connected with my, my inner purpose. Um, and because I could name that, I felt really determined in, you know, like, I know why I'm doing biology degree. 
I know why I'm here studying this. It has a connection to who I am. Um, but I lost that when I started to realize like, okay, now I can't be a vet. So why am I in biology? And without that, because I had only connected with it through the, the employment, through the job, it, I actually really struggled with like, what's the purpose of this degree now? Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. What am I, I'm going to end up pipetting in a lab somewhere for the rest of my life. And like, that doesn't excite me. I just don't know what I'm con contributing to that I believe in anymore. So I lost my sense of academic determination. And then um, the other part, the other piece of like academic thriving is engaged learning. And that is what I think got me to the finish line. I like, I lived to the finish line at the end. I was not like a stellar academic student by any means, um, but I did okay. And mainly because I found like these individual courses that really excited me. So I had the example I gave uh, when I talked about this last was this class called ornithology which if you're in biology, you know that that is the study of birds. And so I did this class in ornithology and I picked it out. And despite a lot of my peers telling me things like, don't take ornithology, like it is a mountain of work. Like it is just, it is ironically not a bird course. Um, so <laughs> yeah, so I was it a bird course for you? It, so it, it took work, but it didn't feel like work. You know, like do you ever get into a class where you know, there is a lot of volume of stuff, but you're excited about it. So it doesn't feel like, you know, like you're, you're okay going down rabbit holes and like working on the projects doesn't feel painful because it's fun, like in a weird way. Like, you know, you don't, it's not always, I hesitate to say fun, but you know, it doesn't, you get into a sense of flow and it doesn't feel like onerous, you know, mm -hmm. investing the time and effort. Yeah. So I think it was this, it was a lot of work, but it was enjoyable work. So I didn't mind. Exactly. And those are the classes that you do better in because you actually enjoy the work it doesn't feel like a task or a chore sitting down and taking notes when you actually enjoy the subject so for sure and I think the challenge is that uh, as a student I, I and my peers all believe that there were easy courses and there were hard courses and that they were all the same for everybody and that's not the case because we all learn differently and we all have different things that we care about so I remember looking at the syllabus for this course and because I, I had, it was a third or fourth year course and I had started to figure out, you know, I, I actually like some weird things in classes that other people <laughs> don't like. So maybe I'll just look at the syllabus and see if it's something I might like. And I looked at it and it described these labs that I was like, oh, those sound so cool. Like, I want to do that. <laughs> and so I went in and they had the lab courses were, uh, the labs were things like um, they, you participated in the national bird census. So they, rather than being in a lab and doing analysis there, they would send you out with a pair of binoculars and you'd go to like parks around the city and you'd bird watch. And then you'd have to record the, the birds that you saw and what day, what time, and you'd log all of that in the national data set so that they could, like scientists actually studying birds and like discovering things about birds could track migration patterns and like population densities. And so it was really cool because I felt like I'm contributing to something bigger than myself. And, you know, it's really cool to like find and identify birds. <laughs> so it turned me into an amateur bird watcher. <laughs> and, uh, and then the other part that I got excited about was they also let us participate in the National Owl Census. And so we actually went out uh, and had to track owl populations, which is different than migratory birds because owls are active at night and you can't like use binoculars to find them. So we had to go out and the way you track owls is you go out with like a sound recording 
back then because I'm really old and ancient we actually had like like a tape recorder <laughs> and we went out and you would play owl calls of the species of owls you were tracking and they would call back and you had to count the number of calls back so it was I was just blowing my mind because I'm like oh my god I'm like literally communicating with animals here this is so cool <laughs> and it was fascinating and I engaged in that course so well and I got an A and, and it was because I was so into the learning process and I knew enough about myself that I knew what I liked and what I would engage in and how I would do well at those things. And so I'm really glad I completely ignored all of my friends who were like, do not take that course. Like mm-hmm. everybody gets a D in that course. And I did great in it. And they were like, oh, you're weird. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that Leslie, you mentioned very good about bird courses was that people find them different. Like if I find something easy, it's not necessarily going to be easy for you too, just because everyone learns different in a different way. And some courses are heavily memorization based while some are application based. So I do find students who fall into this trap of if some course is very easy, then I will also get a 90 in that, which is not always the case. 100%. And some things, some of the times the things that make courses easier is our, our ability to connect with the faculty member or our ability to like learn from their style of teaching, um, which again, varies person to person. So I think the, the biggest thing I learned in university was how I learned and, and being able to name some of the things that I need to be successful as a learner. And that's informed a lot of things for me later in life, like in terms of how I've developed myself professionally. I know the things that work for me and the things that don't. Um, but it's, those are two things that are really important off the hop uh, to, to be thriving in an academic space. You need, to be, you need to be academically determined and you need to be engaged in your learning and the process of learning, which means you need to know how you're learning. The other thing um, that, that happened for me uh, was when I was leaving uh, the University of Guelph. I had been there for six years. I did two victory laps, <laughs> mainly because I started working uh, part-time uh, in in the university in my last two years. And so I was holding part-time positions. I was coordinating um, peer helper programs and, and awards uh, ceremonies and, and uh, selection processes. I worked on orientation. I worked in residence life. So I was really, really engaged, involved student leader on campus. And I really loved that. Another thing that helped me make it to the end was that I, ha- I was doing all of these things in my coursework and engaging. And I, I tacked on that music minor when I started to realize, like, I don't want to be a biologist. What am I going to do? So, you know, what any sensible person does, I tack on a minor in music. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that helped me make it through my, my course material. But then I, this involvement as a student leader was really what helped me be socially connected and, like, feel invested in my community. And it, it gave me a, a sense of purpose outside of class and I learned all kinds of things from those involvements about around you know like equity and like the things I believed politically like that was I grew as a person I think mostly from those involvements in leadership and then when I left uh, I Guelph is a small enough campus that you can walk across it in about 10 minutes but I was late for everything because I would, <laughs> I would leave myself like 15 to 20 minutes to get someplace because I was like oh you know just in case I'm always late but uh, I would I would uh, walk across campus and I would run into five people that I knew and I'm really bad at not talking obviously and so it was really hard for me to get any place on time because I would just have all these conversations with people who knew me and who I knew and when I left I went to grad school and 
I did all the things wrong. So I was working on orientation at Guelph when I was leaving. And the semesters in the U.S. and Canada don't line up. So in the U.S., the school I was going to for my grad work uh, in higher education and student affairs, uh, it started in mid-August because they had a 16-week semester. And we had a 12-week semester at Guelph, which meant the orientation week that I was helping to coordinate happened in the first week of September. So I was going to have to leave Guelph before being able to even see this product of all the work that we had put in for the last like five months, which was really painful. And I left. And so what I did was I kind of tried to keep one foot in both, both places. So I, I skipped my own orientation to grad school because I was kind of like, well, that's optional. Like I can find another way to, you know, do all of that stuff. And I, then I get another week with my team and, and then I'm going to, I'm going to get special permission to like not go to class on two days that week so that I can come home and work on orientation. And then I'll stay for like two long weekends in a row and I'll be here for most of it. I'll just miss the like two or three days in the middle, which as you can imagine, that's like the first two weeks of my grad school experience. So by the time I got to class and I was actually settled there and actually like there present, uh, mentally, uh, I, I remember people would say like, Oh, who are you? Like, it was a really small program. There was 35 people and I walked into my classes and they were kind of like, Oh, so you're in this program. Who are you? And I remember saying like, Oh, I'm Leslie. And they're like, Oh, you're the one who didn't come to orientation. (laughs) And so for the first year of my program, I kind of was the person who didn't show up. And that was, that was the beginning of my story there. And it became really hard for me to connect with people. I lived in an off-campus apartment, a one-bedroom off-campus apartment by myself. And um, I remember going home at night and watching, well, at the time, TNT. I was watching all these movies on TNT and eating ice cream and, like, calling home, calling my parents and my partner and being like, this is terrible. And nobody knows me. I don't know anyone here. I'm the only Canadian. People make fun of my accent. And... Like it's, I just don't belong here. And I kept like little tiny things. Like I couldn't tell the temperature because it was in Fahrenheit. So I never knew if I should put on a sweater or coat or wear a short sleeve shirt. And like when you got into those middle temperatures, I was just constantly uncomfortable. And, uh, and I'd go to the grocery store and I didn't know any of the brands of food. So I would buy all this food and take it home and it would be really gross but I had no money, so I had to eat it. <laughs> so yeah. it's, but like it just, you, were, you were already feeling like a little um, disconnected, I guess is the, is the word to describe. And like those little things just start adding up and it just makes yeah. it worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I had no sense of belonging and no sense of connection. I honestly didn't think that it would matter if I left, that no one would notice and that maybe they would be better without me because I'm taking up like a space in their program and I'm really not connecting. And I didn't you, feel like I was contributing was, anything. Yeah. Do you think it was because you went from a community at Guelph, which was you were so heavily involved in and transitioning to this new campus, new environment? Do you think that that contrast is what also contributed to your your feeling of uh, disconnect? Oh, 100 percent. 100 percent. And one of the more important dimensions of thriving, a person's ability to thrive is social connectedness. And so when you go through a transition, a life transition, and, and this is the thing that I learned after that. It never stops. We never become fully formed human beings. And then this transition stuff goes away. It's not like suddenly after you graduate university, you're like, I have a steady job and I know who I am. And then like, if you move house or if you change jobs or if you have kids 
or if you lose a member of the family, like you go through these transitions over and over and over again. And you need this, you need to know the same things that helped you cope in the last transition are the things you need to do again. Uh, and in some cases you kind of go back to square one every time that happens. And it's awful. Like I moved to Western, I moved to London a year ago and it's been hard. <laughs> what I've learned now at this point in my life, I'm like, I do not actually deal with transition very well. <laughs> it's, it's hard for me because it takes me, I invest in relationships and it takes me time. And so at the beginning, that time feels lonely and feels kind of sad. And it's hard to, it's hard to connect with people and it's hard to trust people when you're just getting to know them. Um, and so it, everything feels kind of alien and that happened in grad school and it kind of culminated around six weeks. And this is again at the six weeks, six week mark and the six month mark, there's like psychological things that happen to people in transition. So at the six week mark, there's like a wall and that happens around in, in undergrad that happens around Thanksgiving fall reading week. That's, that's around where this, like you hit it and it feels like everything is the worst. Nothing is working. Nothing is going to go well. I need to give up. And then the midterms, of course. (laughs) Yeah. The midterms all hit at that time. And you're, you've, you've gone through the honeymoon stage, whatever that looked like. And now suddenly you're like, okay, this is just the reality of what I'm in. And this is what it's going to be like forever. And if it's not feeling good, it's hard to imagine continuing down that path. And that happened to me in grad school. So I, I, I remember the day it happened, actually, like there was like a really big example happening because I hadn't slept for about 48 hours. And again, I, or maybe even longer, I can't remember. I'd been sleeping really poorly. And then I went without any sleep for like two days. And the number one thing that can improve your mental well-being, like a doctor told me this, who I worked with, was, uh, is sleep. So if you're not sleeping, everything else doesn't work. Everything else is worse. So I hadn't slept and I had this midterm to write and I knew I was going to fail it. It's a really small program. So it feels like, and it, it, like nobody fails in that program because like it's small, it's like community oriented. They come in and they help you with stuff. And it's not that it's not hard. It's just, it's very uncommon for people to fail. (laughs) And I'm just like, I am going to crash and burn and it's awful. And I'm embarrassed and I don't even want anyone to know. I just want to leave. I want to get in my car and leave right now. But I feel bad because there's only 35 people. So they'll like worry about me. So I have to go tell someone that I'm going to drop it. So I decided I was going to drop it. And I went to my faculty advisor and he is this lovely, lovely person who I'm still in contact with, an important mentor in my life. And in that moment, though, he said something which actually didn't help me. <laughs> I went in and I said, you know, like, this is, this is how I'm feeling. Like, I don't belong here. I'm not, I, I feel like I'm not doing well and I'm not good at this. And I, I feel like you made a mistake letting me into this program. And, and I think I should just drop out and leave. And he said, don't worry, Leslie. This is totally normal. It's October. It's the crying time. And I just remember thinking like, oh, this doesn't make me feel better. <laughs> it took me a little bit to internalize and understand why I didn't feel better. And it was mainly because what I heard in that moment was, this is normal. Everyone's going through it, but I'm the only one in your office saying I'm going to drop out. So there's, there must be something really wrong with me. Like, I really, really don't belong here. If, if, if this is totally normal, like, I don't feel normal. So... I guess that means I can't hack it. And so 
I said, okay, I can't, I can't write this midterm. What am I going to do? And he's like, well, you're going to have to go and talk to them because it's happening like right now. So you're going to have to go and tell the professor that you're not going to write it. So I go over it's being written in the library. So I have to walk into the library and I look horrible. Like I haven't slept in two days. Like I'm pretty sure I hadn't showered. I was like all tear stained and, you know, blotchy. It just looked very much like something was wrong. And so I had to walk through the library and caught a couple of glances of somebody being like, oh, is that person okay? <laughs> and I went into the room where the exam was being written and the professor was sitting at the front and everybody was writing the exam already. And he looked up and saw me and he did that like, don't anyone panic, but I'm kind of panicking. And he like walked really quickly to the back of the room and was like, hey, come with me. Come with me. <laughs> and took me out and he, and, he, and he took me in the hallway and he was like, what's going on? What's going on? You okay? And I said, yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine. Because I actually couldn't, I couldn't articulate what was going on. I was very much not okay, but there was nothing I could point to. And I remember thinking in that moment, this is a horrible thing to say aloud, but I remember thinking like, I wish there was something that I could point to that was like, yes, like someone in my family died or I had a car accident, you know, and I'm injured. Like I wanted something to be like, that's what's wrong. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have anything like that. And, and all I had was, I think I'm failing at life so I don't want to tell you that so yeah I'm fine but I can't write this exam and I have to drop it do you think it was mainly because of the lack of sleep and exhaustion at that point that like you couldn't think of reasons I think that those like the lack of sleep and exhaustion was definitely part of it um, and I think that that was an early lesson uh, that I learned about you know pulling all-nighters and staying up late and like sometimes I play video games up until in the morning just because I wanted to have some fun and it felt like I couldn't get that done during the day. So doing those things and compromising my sleep schedule, um, I didn't understand back then how bad that is for your well-being and how everything else starts to unravel when you start doing that. The other thing is, is eating. Like I was eating crap. My signature dish that I made for myself as, a, as an undergraduate student and graduate student was chocolate chip pancakes I ate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and, and, and then the, the final thing was exercise. Like I, I went to the gym sporadically, like I would walk a bit, but I didn't really pay attention to like how much activity I was getting. And those three things are like the trifecta of things that will keep your body moving and, and functioning well so that you can invest in things. And if any of those things go off the rails, it becomes really, really hard to do any of the other stuff. I think sometimes we look at those things as like frills, like that's nice. It's for me. And it's a nice thing for me. It's like self care. And that's like a, like a bubble bath or something. And it's, it's a nice to have. And we don't look at them as I can't succeed and I can't help others if I'm not doing those things for myself. And so I wasn't doing those things and that hurt. The other thing I think that fed into this though, was I wasn't connected. I didn't have um, really close friendships at that time in those first six weeks. And so I didn't have somebody who was like coming in and helping me understand that if I failed and if I, if I left the program or that they would miss me or that I was contributing something that they noticed and that they liked having me there. I wasn't getting that feedback either. So I think those two things together were really what shaped like, okay, I don't belong here. Nobody cares if I'm here. And now I'm like not functioning anymore. So I just need to leave. This is, this is horrible. And I remember that when I was, the, uh, 
the other factor of thriving I wanted to introduce in here was positive perspective. And positive perspective is about optimism and hope. And I think sometimes when we talk about optimists versus pessimists, we think about, you know, glass half full, glass half empty kind of thing. It's not quite as simple as that. Uh, people who have an optimistic outlook are people who understand that when they have a challenging time, that it's a temporary thing and that they're going to eventually return back to a time where it's not like that. Uh, whereas people who have a pessimistic outlook are people who question when good things happen, how long they're going to last. Like if something good is happening, that means something bad must be around the corner. Um, and so you can see the difference in those mindsets. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah. Yeah. I just think it's important to note that just because you're thriving, it doesn't mean nothing bad is happening. It doesn't mean you're exempt from bad experiences. It's just a matter of knowing that you can get through them. That's yeah. that's, that's important. hundred percent. Yeah. And actually the whole concept of thriving, if you can get these five factors kind of aligned and right, the idea is that it's if you do meet challenge, it won't be catastrophic. And and the idea is that those challenging times, hopefully it, it will be easier for you to get back to thriving and easier for you to be resilient through those challenges. Uh, if you have, if you understand the things that you need to make you thrive. Um, and I, I always struggle with resilience sometimes, like we've been talking about that a lot for the last you know, five to 10 years, you know, be resilient and like grit and all that stuff. And I feel like there are some, I have some challenges with that because it does not acknowledge the systemic things that take away people's ability to be resilient. So when you have some, like, I look at resilience as kind of a vat, you know, you have a capacity to be resilient and there are things that recharge your resilience and there are things that draw on your resilience. But when we look at it just as, okay, let's just teach you how to be more resilient. We're not acknowledging that for some, there are unfair things that draw on their resi- ability to be resilient, which inherently makes them less resilient in the face of challenge. You know, systemic oppressive barriers that grind down at that resilience, that capacity to be resilient over time. And that's why I think thriving is a better way to look at it because you can say, okay, we're not going to put it all on your shoulders. Some of, some of uh, the factors of thriving are about informing our work to remove barriers and to get out of the way of people's ability to thrive so anyways i i i got back to this uh this exam and i i had lost hope that i could make it because of what i had heard in my faculty advisor's office you know that this is normal for everyone and and that was the moment where i was kind of like okay i definitely don't belong here that was the moment that my little hope light kind of like went out and i remember i i talked to this faculty member saying i'm, I'm going to drop out i just want to come and tell you i can't write this exam because i didn't want you to worry and he said, okay, give me like one, I don't think you are okay. So it's okay not to be okay. And I want you to give me 48 hours. Like now is not the time to make life decisions. So take 48 hours and I want you to come tomorrow. First, you're going to go home to sleep and then you're going to come and talk to me tomorrow morning. And don't worry about the exam. Like I have other copies of it. You can write it again later. Let's not worry about that yet. I just want to come and talk this out a bit tomorrow, but you need some sleep first. So I went back to his office the next day and we sat and talked it out and he said, you know, um, it sounds like this really sucks. <laughs> like it, this sounds really difficult what you're telling me. And I was like, it is, it is really difficult. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, it sounds like it. And I, I remember thinking like, okay, like maybe it's not just me. Somebody else can see that this is not going well. <laughs> and it's not just because I suck at this. And, uh, and he said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Give me a couple of weeks and we're going to try some stuff. We're going to try some stuff and see if it makes this better. And so we'll reschedule your exam and 
we're going to find some ways to get you back on track. One is like, you need to, you need your regular sleep. And, and he connected me with some supports and resources. And then I went back to my apartment and I kind of started trying to get back to the grind, feeling a little validated. And I, the next morning I woke up and there was a knock on my door and I opened the door and there was Patty and she was an upper year student in the program. So it was a two year program and they, they had connected uh, first year and upper year students in the program in a mentoring relationship. And so she was my mentor and she knocked on my door and she was like, Hey, um, what you doing? And I was like, Oh, like nothing, you know, it's just, I was going to head to class this afternoon. And she was like, Oh, cool. I'm just heading there now. Why don't you grab your stuff? and like, come on with me and we can have some lunch when I'm done class. And I was like, okay. Uh, well, this is really awkward now if I say no, because you're standing at my door. So, uh, I'll, okay. I'll get my stuff. Cool. And that, that was the other thing that my professor had told me. He was like, okay, it sounds like you're saying no to a lot of things because when we're struggling to be connected, when we're struggling during transition, the most awkward thing in the world sometimes feels like saying yes to things. Like when somebody says, hey, do you want to come out? You're like, no, it's okay. Because in your head, you're kind of like, they're only asking me because I'm standing here. And like, they don't really know me. They don't really want me to come. Like, I'm totally like the third wheel and I don't want to like impose. And so I said no to a lot of things. And he was like, look, you've got to start saying yes. So the next for the next week, every time somebody asks you a question, I want you to say yes. And I was like, okay. So this is, she shows up to my door. And the other piece was, she shows up to my door and knocks on my door. I hadn't seen her for, for a while. And so I had this like toe curling moment where I was like, oh my God, my, the professor totally told you to come and knock on my door, which is super embarrassing, but cool. And then she said, you know, come to campus with me. And I was like, okay, well, Mike's rule is say yes. So I'm going to say yes. Yes. So I'll come to campus with you and we'll have lunch. And so we did. And I studied in the library. It was really actually good for me to get out of just that isolated space where I was trying to study and go to the library and be around other people, even if I wasn't talking to them. And then um, she, she showed up every day. She would, she would knock on my door and then she'd be like, hey, we're just watching Grey's Anatomy down, downstairs. Why don't you come and join us? And I was like, yeah, no, like, that's okay. Like, that's your group of friends. Like, this would be weird. And she's like, well, it's going to be awkward now. I told them you're all coming. And you know, she made it really hard to say no, which it's an art <laughs> that we should all learn. But uh, I started, I started making friends. I started making those connections and feeling like, you know, there was value in my friendship for others. I started to feel value as a person again, because I, you know, could make people laugh and could be there for them and help them. So those are the things, social connectedness is something that is incredibly important. And I'm thinking about it in the context of this pandemic. And it's been the hardest thing to maintain. Yeah, that was the other topic we really wanted to bring up today is especially like that sense of connectedness during a pandemic. Yeah. I also want to add like how important social connectedness is like, so it's so close to my heart. I'm an international student who moved to Canada like two years ago. And all of the struggles that you described, Leslie, I know like I've experienced them. I've been through them. I know how frequent they are. Sometimes you just hope or wish that there was someone who could just pull you out and say, hey, let's go grab a coffee. Let's go study together and things like those. So these are real, even for students who change provinces or change cities going into environments where they don't have lots of friends. That's, I, I think it's so real and very underestimated. So it's mm -hmm. always good to look after each other. Mm, and sure. on to that point, um, how should students stay connected during this time, like during a pandemic right now? 
Yeah. And I think that we're all kind of back to that transition. You remember how I said that we're never done transitioning. So I think sometimes we think about first year students being the main group that we have to, that we have to prepare to transition. Um, there's also a transition when you graduate, which we don't think about as much. And that's a really important one that you guys kind of alluded to already. Um, but I think we need to think carefully about how we transition and support graduating students who are going through that as well. But all of us are now in this transitory period of figuring out how to be a healthy human while living dis in a disconnected way. We're not able to use all of our regular coping strategies. Uh, we're like, you know, something as simple as hugging and going to somebody's house who isn't part of your small household is, is, are things that are less available to us now. Um, and I don't think that there's, a, again, a clean answer that works for absolutely everyone. I think that some of the things that have helped me are um, finding alternatives to Zoom to talk to people. So I actually have to balance how much time I sit in front of a screen now. And I have to be really conscious of that. So I normally, things I would do to cope in the past were things like I'd play video games or I'd like watch Netflix. And I actually have to consciously be like, no, I am sitting in front of a screen for a very long time each day doing work. And those cannot be the ways that I cope. I cannot cope watching more screens because that does have, it does something to your brain and it, it changes how well you can feel. Mm -hmm. So I, I have to... Yeah. yeah, like sitting at a screen all day. I feel like I get headaches more often. I just feel like I'm so stuck, like focused on the screen all day. And so that's why I'm wearing like blue, the blue light glasses that uh, my doctor had recommended because you're staring at your screen for so long. It really affects like a, your physical health and your mental health as well. Mm-hmm. hundred percent. And so I think that finding ways to talk to people. So I've, I've been doing some, of, I've been trying to do some of my work meetings on the phone as opposed to just on Zoom, because then it breaks up the screens a little bit, and I can walk. So I can take up my phone and I can walk outside. Um, so one of the things I had had a chat with an instructor at Western about was, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's opportunities for us to like switch some of the lecture videos to podcast and like have students be able to listen to uh, a lecture while they're riding their bike or walking or, and you can actually, we can encourage that, you know, like, are there alternative ways that we can be getting those instructional materials out there? But also are there alternative ways that we can be like engaging with each other socially? And I'm finding, I, I have a Friday night Euchre game that I play with, uh, with a couple of friends from university. Uh, and we, we use an app now. <laughs> so we will, we'll use the chat function in the app and just play Euchre. And sometimes something as simple as that, like it's not, it doesn't feel onerous. Like we're not jumping on it. We don't have to schedule a synchronous call. It's just kind of like the notification comes up on your phone, like, oh, so-and-so started a game. Like, do you want to play? And then, you know, we can chat with each other a little bit and play the game. And it, there's just, a, there's that thread of social connection and knowing that somebody cared about you enough to reach out and, and that you can play a game that doesn't feel as much like work, um, that that's something that's really important. I find, um, my pets matter to me right now <laughs> to like spend time with my cat. Um, although I had to lock him out of the room for this because he'll hop up and he's quite loud. Um, but I think just finding alternative ways to socialize, some of which may include technology, some of which are, you know, sitting on a lawn and talking um, with, with whoever is nearby. Sometimes it's connecting with people you haven't connected with because they're in proximity to you. Um, we might not, like my whole family's in Oshawa. 
And so I'm finding it really hard to stay in touch with them in some ways, because it's almost painful to stay in touch with them because it's so not as good as being around them. And so what I've, I've intentionally tried to make sure that I'm investing some time in new friendships that I'm building in our neighborhood. Um, so like I have kids and trying to make sure that I, I get to know their parents of their friends. So because then I can at least have some social interaction and some human interaction and it does change my day when I invest in that and when I do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the, at the end of the day, I don't know that there's an easy way through this because what's happening right now is completely contrary to all of the evolutionary biology that makes us who we are. So I think what's important to recognize is just, well, everyone's going through this transition. So it's definitely not just you. And I feel like in a way we can all connect on that similar uh, level in terms of, okay, we are all trying to figure it out. And especially as students, I think it's also important to recognize that faculty are also going through this transition. And so while we're struggling to adapt to online learning, faculty are also trying to adapt to online teaching. And I feel like that's a a bit of a disconnect that um, we don't necessarily think about on on a daily basis. I think actually the the best path through this is empathy and gratitude. Um, So uh, I'm actually, one of the projects that I work on at Western is this blog called Thrive Online. And it's a space where we're trying to create authentic places where students can share their own stories the way they want to share them. And, uh, and it's really about, you know, like not just posting about something you want to educate people on, but like, how am I connected to that thing? Like telling a bit about yourself in relationship to the things you want to put out in the world. And um, I think that those spaces are even more important now uh, because they establish our empathy. Uh, one of the series we want to, we want to put on, the blog uh, coming up is something kind of inspired by the Book of Awesome. Um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the Book of Awesome. I actually went to school with the author, which is interesting. But uh, but it's like one: what small things bring you joy every day that you can be grateful for? And because because this year, literally, I said this this morning, and I'm like, oh, this is really true. This is the worst year I've been alive. <laughs> like this has been my worst year. <laughs> Um, so I think maybe I'm grateful that this is the worst year because that means that the years that were before that were, I guess, good. Uh, but you know, there are still things that do bring me joy even during this time. And if I think about those things, they actually, it it shifts my mindset away from that pessimistic mindset that, you know, something bad is coming next to, you know, there are small things that I'm enjoying and there, there might be something that brings me joy tomorrow and it might be something little. Um, so when I, I used to commute to Ryerson when I was working there for an hour and a half each way. So I had three hours of commuting every day and it was soul suckingly awful. It was terrible. I hated it. And it really started to drag me down. I did it for six years. And what I learned about halfway through was I needed to find something to just make it through. And so I started a social media campaign called hashtag beautiful commute. And I would, I had to take a picture of something every day that I found beautiful that was on my commute. And it was like, I like, I gave myself a photo essay assignment basically. Um, But it, it was, it gave me something fun and something to look forward to. And it shifted how I looked at the commute because it changed what I felt about my connection to place and travel and transition and movement. And it made it into something else. Um, and I think that those are some of the things we need to think about as we're in this transitory period of this pandemic is what are the little things that we can do to remember things that are joyful and focus on things that bring us joy and 
and share those with others. You know, like what are we grateful for and how can we make sure that we have that empathy for others, whether they're peer students or the instructors in your class, because you're right, they are struggling too. Um, I know staff are struggling, instructors are struggling. We're all, we're all feeling it. Would you say that's your ultimate vision for Thrive Online, building that kind of safe space community, uh, even in a pandemic, just having that online space? Yeah, I think um, when I think of an authentic space, um, what, I, what I know is that it can't only be stories of people who are thriving right now. Sometimes they're also stories of what we need to have to thrive that we don't have right now. And so I think we have to have stories of challenge too. Um, because those are real. And I think that sitting down and telling only positive stories in that space right now isn't going to help us connect because not everybody is feeling positive right now. And that's okay. That's just where we are, but we have to be able to share that and relate to each other using, uh, using our stories. So I think the vision for Thrive Online is, is, yeah, it is exactly that. Just a space where people can tell talk about what's going on right now and, and share that with others, knowing that one person's story is going to connect with a whole bunch of other people because we're, we all go through these things and, and we will all connect with maybe not the specific thing that's happening, but we'll connect with the emotions. Um, so, and that's what empathy is, right? It's a superpower. You know, like it's, uh, if you tell me your story and what's happening for you and I can see how you felt or how you're feeling about that story. I actually have these parts of my brain, my mirror neurons that fire and they make me feel that too. So it's, it's really incredible when you think about it that way. Uh, and it changes how you look at the experiences of others. That's a very good point because a few months ago, I was actually thinking about the friendships that they had made throughout my time at Western. And I said, okay, so let's look at which ones are the most effective ones. Two things that I noticed was that uh, the most like, valuable friendships that they had were either through common grounds or interests which could be happening through clubs joining clubs doing similar extracurriculars or sharing your struggles or vulnerabilities as you very well mentioned because those involve emotions they require you to get closer to one other person and understand how they felt at a certain point of time which is really important and not everyone is comfortable sharing them uh, it was really important to us to make sure that we pivoted our services during the pandemic so that we maintained the full suite of programmatic uh, supports and, and activities for students are all available online, uh, which was pretty incredible, actually, that we managed to do that in a really short period of time. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to highlight, too, is that our, our mental health team has cut their wait times really significantly. Uh, and so it's really important to know that one, you can, you can have a virtual appointment with a counselor, uh, and that the wait times to get an appointment are within three days. And in some cases, that's just do it down to scheduling, matching up scheduling. Um, so I know there are availabilities almost every day for, for students to come in. And if, if you're in crisis, you can get a same day appointment. Um, so it's important to know that those things exist and to, to reach out for help when you need it. Um, uh, because I think that just knowing that the university and the people at the university, the university is made up of people. Like we talk about the university as though it's this like thing and it's really just people. It's the people who work there and the people who go to school there. And we all want everyone to be successful and we all care that you're here. And we hope that you're going to reach out to us for help when you need it. And we want to be there for you as, as much as possible. 
we're, we're people though. We're not always going to get everything right, but we're trying our best for sure. If there's one thing I kind of wish uh, students and perhaps faculty, if they're listening, uh, the one thing I wish they get out of this conversation is the fact that there are resources available, even in an online environment. So even if you're not necessarily physically on campus, there's still these resources available if you need help. So, 100%. Check out our website. <laughs> um, so Leslie, to summarize today's session, what would you say is one thing that you would like students or faculty or our listeners take away from this conversation and like maybe start applying it to their lives? I think that what I hope people take away is that there are, there are proactive things we have control of that we can do to improve our well-being and our outlook, that, that we, we do have some control. There are things we can't control right now, but there are things we do have control of. And those things are how we choose to take care of our, our bodies, how we, how we choose to reach out to friends and family and, and lean on each other for support. Um, and how we, how we choose to look at the challenges that are, that are in front of us and, and not to minimize those challenges. Like these are, these are real tough times. Uh, but if you, if it's important for us to know that it's not always going to be like this, um, you know, and that we will, we will get through this and there will be something else on the other side. Uh, but it's hard when you don't know when it's hard when you don't know when that's going to happen and how. And what it's going to look like. And I think that sense of uncertainty is what feels kind of the worst about what's happening right now. But, um, but just knowing that we're all in this together and that we're all trying our best to take care of each other. And, and that, you know, yeah, I think empathy and gratitude as much as possible. They will make our personal lives better. They help us thrive as much as they're about helping others as well. That's awesome. And also, you mentioned previously about those foundations of well-being, uh, which is good food, exercise, and good amount of sleep per night. That's, I think, really important. And I, I, I would be honest, I'm also struggling to balance all three of them at the same time. But being aware of how important they could be in like your daily life is also very oh, yeah. useful. Well, and sometimes I feel like we just have to lower the bar for ourselves. You know, like what's, what is actually reasonable for us to accomplish right now? You know, sometimes good enough is good enough. And yeah, I, I think that I read, a, I read an article by, um, by a faculty member at U of T about the six month wall after sustained crisis. And that when you, when you hit a wall, when you feel like this is, things are going horrible and things are not, not good. Success during that sometimes is just getting up in the morning and showering. <laughs> you know, and like feeding yourself breakfast, like they're simple things, but there are times in our lives where they become the hardest things to do. And if you get them done, like, that's it. That's all you need to do. And it's okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this podcast. It was a joy to have you here. I definitely took a lot away from this conversation. Um, I hope all the listeners did as well. Uh, once again, check us out on our Instagram at humans underscore Western and our humans of Western Facebook page for more podcasts and uh, just sharing general stories about people at Western.